Welcome, you're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander with me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. And me, Reverend Terry Menifee-Gow. Just be aware, there's going to be spoilers here. Right, so we are, we're back with season three. The, we're, what we're doing um, for this episode, well, for this episode and the next episode, two episodes, da, 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 is listener feedback. Yeah, I think our listener feedback has gotten so good. And so deep that yes. um, it's kind of hard to start an episode with that and then launch into something else. So Jamie was like, look at all this really great feedback. And she, <laughs> she's like, I think we need episodes on their own. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're right. So, so this was totally her idea. And I'm like, give it up to Jamie, who's amazing. Um, because truly, this is a great idea. And y'all's feedback has been so powerful and, and mm. you've challenged us on so many things, rightfully so, mm. that we're grateful. Yeah, and so, so the next good. two episodes, we're just going to handle that. Yeah. Yeah, because it's fantastic. We're really... and Okay, so sh- sh- yeah, let me just say, <laughs> you might have emailed us and you may not yet have gotten a response. <laughs> and I just want to say, I'm so sorry. It's not that we don't read it. It's not that we don't care because we totally do. So this is a part, part of why we wanted to do these episodes was sort of to pay back our, um, <laughs> our inappropriate silence uh, as far as emails go from people who have sent us amazing stuff. Right. But also, too, to, because they're not just kind of, hey, have you thought about, and then just a little sentence. No, these are like pages uh, of stuff that people are sending us, which is why I love fandom so much. People take these stories seriously. Yeah. For that and that's why we started this podcast is because we take this story seriously too. And the hours and days and weeks and months that we've spent kind of parsing this text out, it deserves time and attention and fan responses, listener responses also deserve time and attention. And we are not the last authority on this text. We are no, not. God, no. We are not. I mean, we are people who like to ha- be part of this conversation. And because we have microphones yeah. and a lot of technology and are audacious enough <laughs> to actually put our opinions out there and have this conversation. Dare to even think about it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And we're grateful to have that privilege to be able to do that. It doesn't mean that yeah. we're the final word on this. And so we are so no, grateful that fandom pushes back on some of the things that we're saying mm. because that's mm. what a conversation is. It's it's an exploration into something that neither of us really have the authority over. Mm. But we but we have the authority mm. of our experience and our opinion and we all mm. are intelligent enough to have this conversation because we have experience mm. and opinion. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, I I appreciate those who have really come to the table to say, hey, mm-hmm. I have an opinion. I know these things in my life to be true because they have been true for me. Mm-hmm. But I also appreciate what you're saying. It, again, mm-hmm. it goes back to the wisdom of the little story of the elephant and the three blind men has, yeah. has just carried me yeah. through for the last 50 years in my life yeah. of, you know, you've got the three the three men and the blind men, or let's just call them three women and the blind men, the three blind women and the elephant. <laughs> And that one has got the yeah, tail, one has got the side, and one has got the trunk. And when they're mm. trying to describe it, they're describing different animals, but you can't really understand the full animal until you're talking to each other. 
So mm-hmm. we are trying to understand this animal that is Outlander. And, uh, yeah. and you guys are really helping us. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fantastic. And I mean, that was the reason why we started this podcast, too, was so that we could begin to kind of have the conversation about the role that it plays in people's lives and how they're engaging with this text and what they think is important about this text. And so, yeah, it's been it's been lovely to hear from everybody. So as far as developments around the podcast before we get started, so this these two episodes will finish up um, season three for us um so you'll have a nice round 10 episodes for season three finished up and then we will be back in february for season four of the podcast but also season five of outlander on television yes droughtlander will be finishing up and we will you'll have more outlander than you know what to do with um, (laughs) as far as the tv show goes and our podcast coming back it'll be a veritable feast of outlander i know i know it's gonna be great and if you love this show, if you want to wear this show or drink from a mug about the show, if you love, 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 love it, or, or maybe maybe you want a koozie, or maybe you want, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you are desperate to have, we've got a mm. Teespring account. And mm. that would be at teespring.com slash stores slash Outlander Soul. When you purchase something from us, we generally take a quote from the book, and it's the Reverend Wakefield quote. You will find all kinds of different swag that's out there that has this quote from Reverend Wakefield. If you ever find yourself in the midst of paradox, you can be sure you're standing on the edge of truth. It's one of the beautiful pieces of theology that you get from Outlander. And so if and, and of course you'll see our little logo on there as well. But if you're interested yep. and you want to wear us, drink from us, whatever. <laughs> Come on, you want a hoodie with Reverend Wakefield's quote on it. <laughs> head to head anyway. to teespring.com and order away. And also, I mean, we say this every time, but your support through Patreon or through PayPal just matters so much for us. So any support you're able to give us uh, in order to keep this ship afloat um, would be fantastic. So shall we get started? Yes, please. I think, yeah, I think a great place to start. So we've gotten feedback from loads of different people and in relation to different episodes, but also kind of generally as well. So we'll give first names and then we'll kind of talk about the episode that it was in relation to or how it applies. And so we'll start with Jennifer, who's talking kind of around the issue of Outlander as a sacred text. Um, Oh, let me read what Jennifer says. Jennifer says, to your point about these being generative texts, I find new themes and meaning every time I read them. I don't know if you're a fan of audiobooks, but listening to these books on Audible as opposed to reading them was a revelation. I'm not sure if it engages a different part of the brain, by the way it does, or if it just forces one to slow down. But things that I missed jumped out, and I got a whole new level of story from listening versus reading. It was almost like a new series. Mm. So thank Mm. you, Jennifer. That's a really interesting bit of feedback on that. And no, I've not read them. I've thought about it. You mean heard them? Listened to them on Audible? Yeah, yeah. I've I've thought about listening Mm. to them because... I've got a new <laughs> trek to work since February. My, I, I went from having a five-minute commute to my job to having a half-an-hour commute to my job. So mm-hmm. I, on the way to my job and on the way back, I thought, you know, it would be great if I could listen to a book. But I'm a person who's a little bit more visual, and so it helps mm-hmm. for me to see the words on the page. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. because the way they look makes a sound in my brain and I don't know why that Mm. is and so Mm. I've not listened to things as much because of that but because of this I might try one it might be a cool thing to do Um, on the way to work yeah I remember so I'm I'm, because I'm teaching at a theological college and doing lots of Bible, biblical study stuff. I remember one of my colleagues talking about listening to the Bible on audio book and how he had read that story and read that story and read that story over and over and over again, thought he knew it. And then he listened to it being read and it would, he was like, oh my gosh, how have I never noticed that before? Right, right. Um, so yeah, I do think that, that Jennifer's absolutely right. That it does engage a different part of your brain, but it also others the text in a different way. So something that you think is quite familiar then becomes foreign because it's in somebody else's voice. Yes. It's in a, um, the emphasis that they place may not be the emphasis that you put on when you're reading it to yourself kind of thing. So we do that a lot, actually, in the biblical studies stuff that I do of reading the text aloud together. Yes. Um, as a as a means of hearing it differently. Sometimes you don't notice anything, but most of the time you do. You mean Lectio Divina? Yeah, well, Lectio Divina can be that. Lectio Divina is the kind of repetition three times kind of thing. And so you hear well. something maybe different each time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the Lectio Divina, you pick a text, you read it once, you wait. And you read it a second time, you wait. And then you read it a third time, and you wait. And, you know, some people will say you look for a different thing each time you read it. But other times it's just repetitive reading aloud and just waiting for the spirit to speak. Yeah, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, do that with Harry Potter. There's no reason I don't think you can do that. You shouldn't do this with Outlander, too. Yeah, I think it's really important. But yeah, I have to say, I and, and mm. I appreciate Jennifer's point of view on this. And I'm glad that she mm. Finds something new, and she finds this text generative. Mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. to say that, as far as the gener- as far as the use of the term sacred text is concerned, mm-hmm. um, I post mm-hmm. our podcast to a lot of Facebook groups that are out there who love Outlander, yep. and I saw some pushback mm-hmm. on the term sacred text. I saw people who who clearly were upset by the use of the term sacred text, particularly Mm. if we're using it in the same kind of phrase as biblical texts or other sacred texts that, that, and and, and in this case, it was biblical. There were a couple of folks. religious um, tradition. Yeah, yeah, religious texts. And Mm. there were a couple of folks who were like, "Um, I love Outlander, but this is blasphemous. This is not Mm. something that I could, this is not sacred. This is not that. Mm. That we're talking Mm. about God here and how dare you talk about that people were very upset in one particular group it's not as if we've gotten lots of hate oh, mail or anything oh gosh before, no but no yeah. no and even in it's that Facebook. thread <laughs> i mean gosh no if we'd gotten lots of hate mail hell we'd be like really super popular um <laughs> but but um but we did actually had a champion in that group too who said have you mm-hmm. seen harry potter's sacred text have you seen mm-hmm. this and i was just kind of grateful for somebody who got it and knew and not the folks mm-hmm. who were necessarily completely afraid to even listen and maybe explore yeah. that. And so, yeah. Jennifer, thank you for being mm-hmm. able to hold those two things to be true, is that I've got a sacred yeah. text here, but I'm also able to see that this possibly is something generative, that I get something new about every day that I read it. 
Yeah, and I think I think it's really interesting too how threatened people get when you call something sacred. Okay, maybe it's not sacred to them, but it might be sacred to other people. And so, yeah, I just the fear of of that I think is just really fascinating. Well, and and that I guess it's your definition of sacred. Again, yeah. While Paul Tillich has his issues, I I <laughs> I I always go back to the idea of the ordinary becoming sacred because of how we treat it. We treat a piece of bread and a cup of either grape juice or wine, which are very ordinary things, but we treat them Mm. differently and they become sacred. Yeah, in the Christian tradition. In the Christian tradition. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist or communion. And so we treat treat the agreement between two humans to stay together for the rest of their lives as sacred. That's just a Mm. normal, ordinary agreement. But mm-hmm. we treat it as a yeah. sacrament. We treat it sacredly. Mm-hmm. So my so from marriage or partnership, yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it, it becomes something more when we treat it like something more. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the issue yeah. is we shouldn't be treating this as something more, or we can't treat this as something more because it has already been treated as something. Something else has got that special uh, tag attached to it. Something else has got that sacredness attached mm-hmm. to it. It didn't mm-hmm. arrive to us sacred. I don't believe. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. our actions are what make it that way. Yeah. And that, I mean, that would be the methodology around Harry Potter and the sacred text yeah. as well. It's yeah. like the text in and of itself isn't sacred so much, but at the community who has declared it so. And so this idea of a community that is working within a particular canon, this body of literature that we're working with here, as far as the Outlander books go, and saying, there's something about this text we want to spend some time in. We think it has a gift to give us. And if we treat it with rigor and respect and read it in community with one another, it's got something to say. Yeah. And, and I think it's also connected, too, with this idea that things that are sacred or should be limited, um, that there's kind of a scarcity around sacredness, which to me is not what's being sacred is about sacred is about abundance it's about being life and generativity and gift and you know like just being able to just give and give and give and and I don't sacred is not a limited thing for me and so I think once you start closing the doors of only one thing can be sacred then well you're missing out on a lot well and it's also an issue with who owns that sacred so if there's a limited amount who owns that sacred then has power over they, they wield that sacred. Yes. Okay. And it's their use of authority. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And that's and yeah. when you open it up to other things becoming sacred, it democratizes mm. it to a, a huge mm. degree. And suddenly it's available for God the masses. <laughs> it, it doesn't make it any less valuable, but yeah. it, it does yeah. make it more available. And that's scary to the folks who have owned the sacred. Yeah, it undermines power. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. It's a good stuff. Heavier than Um, I expected it to be. So thank you, Jennifer. Yeah. That was great. So, okay, next would be Julie, who was giving us some thoughts related to what we covered actually in season one. And we've, I mean, it's kind of been part of the underlying sort of foundation of what we do, but around Outlander as romance and how romance is important. And and nobody really thinks theologically about romance. And so we felt we needed to. So, yeah, so Julie was responding to that particular episode, but I think 
just found uh, found our podcast and, and so kind of was starting from the beginning and telling us what she thought. Julie says that reading Outlander with her 16-year-old daughter, which, mm-hmm. wow, you're brave, Julie, because there's some... There's some mm. there's some heavy scenes, and I, I applaud you for being able to talk frankly with your daughter and reading mm. this with your daughter because there are some very specific scenes around sexual violence and just intimacy that mm. to have that conversation with your daughter now is everything. So congratulations, yeah. number one, for that. But she says that That reading- was in response, too. We asked if you read romance in community, and so she says she is reading this story in community as far as with her 16-year-old daughter. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I wonder if a youth group could do that. That would be, wow. Oh, my god. Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I would have wanted to be a part of that youth group, man. Oh, yeah. Oh. Oh. yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So Julie says that Outlander has benefited her relationships, especially with the themes of forgiveness, mercy, and honor as being aspirational for her. She says, I honestly don't know how you could not experience the divine in a long-term romantic relationship unless both persons were atheists. God is omnipresent in a mutually loving relationship. Whether or not you open your eyes to God in that place is the question. If you pay attention to God while at the same time paying attention to your partner, you experience God during lovemaking, during a meal, during a drive, during a conversation while reading about another mutually loving relationship. Not all the time, but in any given moment that can happen. Mm, so yeah, she's she's kind of talking a lot about what we said is that when you're in a relationship with with each other, that relationship necessarily brings about the divine or mm. it can bring about the divine. When there is love there, mm. the divine is there. And mm. that, you know, the intimacy that we see in Outlander shows that there is kind of a an unmentioned third person there, an unmentioned other mm. that is divine, mm. that when Jamie and Claire come together intimately, that there is kind of that other divine sacredness of their coming together Mm -hmm. of their doing just the average ordinary thing every day of him hunting and then coming back and being with her of him holding her in the morning of of them touching each other it it, it's all fair it's not just ordinary there is something sacred to that and when you're Mm -hmm. at a relationship that deeply when when you have that kind of deep romance we generally think of God as being a part of that deep romance. If you are somebody who is deeply spiritual in nature, that there is a spiritual piece of that. Yeah, or looking for God in in the in the ordinary. Yes, and, and the ordinary then becoming extraordinary yes. as a result. Yeah, yeah. She talks about also we um, we mentioned this in the episode, or I think I, I certainly told the story of remembering as a child. She talks about basically reading Harlequin romance novels mm. voraciously when she was in seventh grade, which I definitely re- uh, resonate with. <laughs> I had that same yep. experience. Yep. And she says, for years, I felt rather guilty about it. But now as a 54-year-old mother, I see it as the beginning of my reading addiction. (laughs) So as far as taking romance seriously as a genre, I think that's important. And she says, after reading a lot of the Outlander series and listening to the podcast, our podcast, she says, I finally see romance fiction as a bona fide component of my reading preferences. And she says she typically reads historical or generally 
uh, popular fiction as well as nonfiction, but that the Outlander series has made her grateful for her happy marriage and think and I think that this is these are her words. I think good romance novels should do that. They should reflect and highlight our own personal romance experiences. So she says, "No, of course, my husband is not a hunky redheaded Scot with an honor code that merits Jamie's King of Men title." <laughs> Okay, but has his own amazing qualities that I adore. And these books and the stars series reminds her of those all the time. So she says that both she and her husband love the show. And it's been a lovely aphrodisiac as well as a launch pad for some great discussions. Yeah, so, yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, I, I love, I just, I have these spates where I, I, I'll read Outlander. And then it gets so heavy, and it's particularly in Fiery Cross, because guys, I'm still in Fiery Cross. They just <laughs> finished with the, the gathering. gathering. <laughs> God. They're on the road back from the gathering. And so I'm looking forward to getting into the rest of this. But oh, I have a so greater funny. appreciation, actually, for the gathering now, because it does lay the foundation for the rest of that novel. And it does yeah, lay the foundation. Okay, it lays the foundation for the rest of the books. It does. It totally does. And I... <laughs> but you're like, this is the day that never ends. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's like, will they get married already? Will Roger and Bree get married already? <laughs> so um, so while I, I've, I've had to take breaks, and I'll go in spates of reading just romance novels, just frothy heroine romance mm. novels that mm. I, I love because it... I don't know. It's kind of like eating ice cream after I've had nothing but chia seeds. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I read also a lot of theology stuff and a lot mm. of heavier academic works. And so mm. having read that and having read the thing that's good for me, eating my broccoli, you know, and, and <laughs> it, it's great to finally get to some dessert every once in a while. And so I, I still go back to those romances I still go back to those Mm -hmm. and read for a bit if not for anything but to remember why I love reading so much and to just kind of be in that moment of the cute meat and the discovery and the oh my god it's not going to work out and then yes of course it is going to work out I I I love I love that myth I think it's beautiful Mm -hmm. it resonates with me and I'm not ashamed to say that whereas I this is, <laughs> I'm about to confess something, and I'm not proud of it all, but I really struggle with going back to the frothy things now oh, yeah? because I feel I really want to, but it's so funny and it's not cool. Like, I'm not saying this is how it should be done, but I would just feel a moral obligation to read heavier things. <laughs> and so I find at the point where, you know, if it is something is kind of frothy, I have to intentionally remind myself that yeah that engaging with joy and frivolity and and just love in and of itself is is enough that it doesn't have to be anymore and so I don't necessarily read those romances anymore but Jane the Virgin was that for me oh Um, yeah I would just engage with Jane the Virgin in the same and it filled that same part for me of just something that just felt like pure joy. There was, n- of course, I'm thinking about it. Of course, I think it's such a rebellious show and I love all that. But at the end of the day, it was about my own mental health and being able to just disengage and enjoy the story, root for 
Roth and you know and oh, Jane yeah. to get together and you know and just love that that whole bit of it that the romance novel used to be for me. Right. Um, now I read Octavia Butler and Margaret Atwood, and right now I'm reading the Testaments. Yeah, um, I have to. I have to actually parse out some of that stuff again. I I, inter- yeah. I internalize stories so so much. I end up yeah. having dreams and things about them, and so mm. I I have to be careful all the things that I put in my head because yeah. they will they will continually resonate during the day and the artist's way is a is something I recommend for people if you've got time for it because it's not that easy to do it does kind of take over your life <laughs> yeah it will take over your life but I have to be careful about how many how much media I consume yeah and and which media I do consume so yeah. I'm I'm careful about about that there are some pieces of media I consume specifically so that I can because I I write as well so that I can see Mm. what other people are writing and how they're writing and what the trends are and things and things of that nature but there are some things I consume just because I need some ice cream that day uh, just to help me process the rest of the world and one day I'll be able to Mm -hmm. watch A Handmaid's Tale because Mm. reading it was really really difficult and I, I still feel the pain from reading that. And that's been 10 years yeah. ago. Yeah. It's, and it's, it doesn't get any better by watching the show. No, definitely. I'm sure it doesn't, especially um, after, you know, what we're going through worldwide yeah. with nationalism and, mm-hmm. and um, kind of like the backlash against all things feminist. So uh, I'm a little afraid to watch that at this moment. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to what Jennifer was saying. Or, I'm Julie. sorry. Julie. Yeah. Back to what Julie was saying. She's talking about similarities and differences of Claire and Jamie's relationship versus her own relationships. And so some of the similarities are like deepening mutual respect and increasing innate knowledge of their of their partner. Because if you're living with somebody for 20 some odd years, you get to know who they are, particularly mm-hmm. if you're intimate with them. The differences are there's something about their physical and intimate relationship that seems particularly fresh all the time. And, and young, despite their ages and years together. And so I, I would agree with that, that there are some differences between, mm-hmm. you know, as you're getting older in a relationship, physically, you can't always keep up. I'm like, damn, Jamie, you're probably <laughs> pretty damn virile. And oh, damn, Claire, too. And not just Jamie. <laughs> yes, not just Jamie, but Claire. Don't you have any problems now that you're past your your menstrual? Yeah, you're, you yeah. know. I'm like, really, you're not having any problems at all? Because let me just say, mm-hmm. <laughs> without my yeah. doctor, I'd be having some issues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I'm I'm impressed <laughs> that yeah that they can keep at it as as often as they do. But I. <sighs> It is not unusual for women or men to have issues uh, at their age, Mm -hmm. at Jamie and Claire's age, number one. Mm -hmm. But number two, I remember talking with my OBGYN once and she said, you'd be, she's, you know, she was, she asked how many times a week and she was asking, you know, for sexual health. And I, I talked to her about that and she's like, you know, I'm always impressed with, she talked in general about her patients. She's like, I'm always impressed with women who are in their 50s and 60s who say, oh, yeah, we still have sex two, three times a week. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, that's really, <laughs> you know, I, I get that from Jamie and Claire. And I'm like, that's something to aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, Julie, though, she does come back and she says that she thinks that maybe that's why this book has such appeal, yeah. that it maybe is that something to aspire to, maybe? Yeah. The aspirational idea that she mentioned earlier. that And also that no matter how much I love my husband of two plus decades, she says, that you can never go back to that first phase of the relationship. But somehow she feels that with Jamie and Claire, even in Fiery Cross, which is where she is right now, she's with you, um, Terry. Yeah. There's still a freshness about their relationship. And and Julia keeps going. Like, it doesn't... This is Fiery Cross. You've got a few more books yeah. to go. Um, and and it's still there. Yeah, um, it is. So, and, yeah. and you're right. Every, every... This is something you continually mention. Every book, they mm-hmm. find a way to make this new. They find a way to yeah. recommit to each other. So it feels new each yeah. each book. And yeah. Diana sets it up that way. Yeah, in every book. Da- Diana yeah. sets it up that way, and then she gives us mm-hmm. another relationship to which to see. Mm-hmm. So we watch other secondary relationships or primary relationships, yeah. like the last two books yeah. we've watched, uh, Bree and Roger get together. Yeah, and Ian and Rachel, and Fergus and Marsley. You know, we've been watching them find relationships, and that too is is satisfying. Because they echo mm-hmm. what happened in the first book with Jamie and Claire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they remind, I mean, it's kind of a compare and contrast, I think. I've never really thought about that. But like, so, you know, the first blush of love kind of thing. And then the, you know, the Jamie and Claire, they've been to go- together for a while now. And so the kind of the committed versus new sort of side by side is really, yeah, is quite a quite an interesting device, I think, in sort of highlighting the the specialness of both well um, and it sets yeah. up it sets a bar for everybody i mean i think that's the, yeah. the kind of not only do not only does jamie lead the community in mm-hmm. how they act as community and not only does claire mm-hmm. lead the community in her healing and her ability to heal the community but together mm-hmm. they set the bar on how to be intimate relationship with each other right they yeah. set the bar on yeah. what a marriage can be and they not mm-hmm. only set that bar for the folks on Fraser's Ridge, but they set that mm-hmm. bar for us. Mm-hmm. And some of it may not be realistic physically for the rest of us, but it's something to which we can as- aspire. And it's something to which mm-hmm. we try that, that I look at and go, wow, that would be great. That is awesome. I'm sudden, suddenly wondering about comparing, if I'm really in, into this and have the time and energy, Comparing Jamie and Claire to Mrs. Bug and Archbug. Yeah. Like, as far as committed relationship, you know, he is out to kill as revenge because he loved that woman. Well, you know? I mean, what happens to Claire when she's raped? Mm. What does he do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he goes berserk. He, yep. yep. He, he, he did. If, if that were to happen, and I'm sure that mm. Jamie understands why Archbug has to do what he does. Yeah, he doesn't ever seem to condemn him for it that I remember. No, because mm-hmm. he understands they've been together forever. They've lost so much. Mm-hmm. It's just that they also, and and um, Julie, cover your ears. They also <laughs> have got this this issue with them not being honest with the rest of the community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there is that, but as far as just marriage relation, committed marriage relationship. Yeah, I do how one is depicted as opposed to the other he's got yeah he's got be interested in that to to take out ian for doing Mm. what he did Mm. 
So if any listener wants to do that work. <laughs> Otherwise, it might be in our find. fifth season. That'd be so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now we have feedback from Kari. And it was in relation to the friendship episode. Yeah. Um, that we were looking just at friendships and Outlander. And she also suggests in the feedback, too, that perhaps we do another episode on partnerships. So not just friendship and not just marriage but just people partnering together for you know certain and sometimes it's family sometimes it's not Mm -hmm. so yeah um terry do you want to yeah sure tell us a bit what she says about that she said that outlander changed her life and that she started reading outlander in her late 20s and now she's in her she's been with it for yeah for a while now yep she's in her early 50s now so she's been reading it Mm. 25 years or so about as long as it's Mm. it's been out So she Mm -hmm. feels like she's kind of grown up with Claire and grown old Mm -hmm. with Claire, I guess. Mm -hmm. So they've chewed much of the same dirt, although she made some different choices. She's a nurse and a mother, and so she chose to have more children, which is not really something I don't think Claire could have chosen given her situation. Mm -hmm. And she Mm -hmm. chose to have a more relaxed career as a nurse instead of going to medical school. Although, let me just say, I don't know how that's possible. I know some nurses. Yeah, I don't know that a relaxed career as a nurse is possible. I don't know that that's relaxed. She also chose not to live with her second choice first husband, but instead she got to stay with her first choice second husband. And let me just give you... I loved that. Let me give you kudos, (laughs) Kari, because that's what I did too. (laughs) Yeah. I loved that, how she wrote that. That was fantastic. Fantastic. I was like, oh, good on you. I will be borrowing that forever now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So she says that she also has a grandchild that has a chronic condition, much like Mandy does. Again, Julie, close your ears. Mandy is uh, (laughs) Roger and Bree's second child, and Mandy ultimately, they discover a chronic illness that cannot be fixed in the present day, 18th century, and they have to travel back in time, travel forward in time to um, get her health corrected. So she says that her grandchild's chronic condition may impact his life expectancy. 200 years ago if they had discovered it then and while she didn't diagnose diagnose it she did recognize the first symptoms and so she had that sinking feeling of not being able to fix it she says I don't know now if I could go back and read that part of the books the same with Claire's recognition of of Mandy's health issues I I I get you on that one I have a hard time Mm -hmm. going back and reading certain things like the loss of faith Mm -hmm. because I had a Uh, there were some difficult times with my one child Jasper when I was pregnant reading the loss Mm -hmm. of faith or reading the loss of a child is just always just so hard for me Mm -hmm. to read when I read that when they lose Henri Christian I I was just Mm -hmm. like I I wanted to throw the book across the room I was just like no Mm -hmm. no 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 not that one that one was special Mm -hmm. to me when she broke her water with blood that I, I knew what was going to happen. And I'm like, no, no, please, no. So mm. I get you on not or having a hard time rereading those scenes. I, mm. I still enter them when I'm rereading the book, but I prepare myself. Mm. Yeah. I think it's interesting, though. So so we were kind of talking about the, the generative text, and every time we come back to it, we, we're expecting something new or we see something different and that it's continuing to give something to us. And I think when you are reading a text that is 
over the course of time. So Kari started reading in her late 20s. Now she's in her early 50s. So this diagnosis with her grandchild has come in the midst of and, you know, in the later years of this development. So when she was reading Outlander in her late 20s. Yeah early 30s and in her 40s that might not yet have happened right and so you read it in one particular way and now something happens in your life and and it changes the lenses that you then come to a text with so you know the ways in which you read a particular text in on one day may be completely different from the way you read a text on the next day depending on what happened yeah and I think that's really important for us to kind of remember even if so just as an aside for book club that I'm a part of some folks had suggested books that they just loved that they had read years ago and they really wanted to read it again and then they read them again and they were like I don't like it as much as I did. Yeah. What was that about? Yeah. Why 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 does this story not speak to me in the same way it spoke to me then it's like because wherever you were at that particular moment in time, you needed something like that. And it, you know, it helped you get there. You can't go back in time now and pretend that you don't know those things. Well, and that it's yeah. And, and storytelling, storytelling too, <clears throat> is different than it was back in the day. Not only are you in a different place, but our community and our society is in a different place now with some of these stories. So yeah. going back and yeah. watching movies in the 1980s about date rape, which was totally acceptable mm. back in the 80s yeah. in a movie. I loved 16 Tank Candles when I was a kid. Yes. Now I can't even bear to watch it. No, mm. I've had to stop. I was like, we're, we're going to watch this because we still refer to it, both David and I. But we are mm. not, but I am not going to watch this with my son without pausing and saying, no, it is not okay for this young man <laughs> to offer his drunk and passed out girlfriend to this geek mm-hmm. so that he can have sex with her. He just basically yeah. said, oh, yeah. Go ahead. It's okay with me. Yeah. That's not ever okay. But even like for me, so I don't know if I've said this before or not. I, maybe not. I don't know. Barbara Kingsolver's Poisonwood Bible. Oh. I, that book was revolutionary for me when I read it. And I was a missionary, you know, at the particular time, living in the foreign field, you know, like doing what they were doing. Doing the work of of Jesus. You were doing it. Yes, yes. (laughs) Telling everybody about the love of God, right? And so it just blew me away. And so I thought, you know, I want to read that book again. Um, Because it just, yeah, it just was sitting there kind of haunting me. Went back to it. And it just made me angry. Yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it anymore. I was like, for fuck's sake. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it was just because I am past that now. I don't have patience for that kind of thing anymore. And so when I read it now, I read it differently because of that experience. Absolutely. Because of where I've been since. Absolutely. Mm. So she goes on to say, and by she, Kari, I mean, yeah. Kari goes on to say that she likes the model of partnership in mm-hmm. Outlander. Uh, in particular, she mm-hmm. likes the relationships between Jamie and Claire, Roger and Bree, and that that has impacted her relationships with her husband. But it, it not so much the romance, but the partnership between the two of them. The fact mm-hmm. that they are two, that they're, these couples are made up of strong individuals and they complement each other's weaknesses. She and her husband are different. He is different on the emotional intelligence than she is. They just handle uh, emotions in different ways. 
She says that we are both so grateful for the other's willingness to do what we ourselves are less than fantastic at, that they complement each other and that they use each Mm. other's partnership to really, really enhance each other's lives and make each other's lives Mm. easier and, and richer. They do not spend a lot of time with recriminations. Like what happens when mm-hmm. Bree finds out that Roger Roger tells her that he kisses Morag, and yeah. they don't. She doesn't Come sit on, there kissing his grandmother. <laughs> you kissed, <laughs> you kissed who? And you were coming after oh, great, me great, 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 in the 18th great century. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a little creepy, Roger. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he Bree is like, you did what? Yeah. <laughs> and then that's it. They don't. She doesn't wallow yeah, in it. She doesn't continue to beat him up about it. They just kind of. Kari says something about bailing each other out repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. and and she feels mm. bad for Frank on that because mm. because of this lack in his life. He d- he doesn't really seem to have a partner. He well he let's put it this way. He is not the partner Claire needed. The full partner Claire needs, and he doesn't get the full yeah. partnership with Claire either. She puts on the nice dinners and she does what she can. And Frank takes care of Bree. He's more Bree's father mm-hmm. than he is Claire's partner, I think. Yeah. And maybe maybe that's yeah. too rough of a statement. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe I'm just mm-hmm. kind of reading into what Kari is saying here a little too much. But mm-hmm. th- there's some there's some kind of lack of partnership there. I think she's right in that ident- identifying that. That there's some kind of mm. lack of partnership there. And I don't know if that's the loss of intimacy or the loss of love between them. Or if that mm. lack of partnership leads to the loss of intimacy and the loss of love between them. Because they enter this partnership. Yeah, she does willingly. ask what would Frank have been like if he had had that kind of partnership. Yeah. How does that partnership shape who these characters are and Frank's absence of it? Right. I think was a really great yeah, question. Yeah, it really is her big takeaway for this is she thinks that partnerships here are really kind of the ultimate feminism so to speak Mm -hmm. and masculinism too allowing us to be fully feminine and fully masculine as genders Mm -hmm. Uh, and of course there's the in-between too of of just owning who you are uh, in a relationship and that people Mm -hmm. as image bearers of god can be improved by working together, by owning who they are. And that, that that's really a strong um, statement about owning who we are as the feminine gender, owning who we are as the masculine mm-hmm. gender, and owning who we mm-hmm. are as maybe somebody who is neither gender or both. And that coming to a partnership fully allows you to, to be all of that and aid not only yourself but the other partner. I can definitely see where gender would play a role. I mean, I think that the danger of it is going down the kind of complementarian route yes. where women need men, men need women. And so then everything hinges upon the gender in order for to abdicate you from responsibility of taking care of your children if you're a man because you need the woman to do that instead. But on the other side of things, though, I mean, there are everybody has gaps no one can be everything to everyone paul failed at it too and and so this <laughs> just in kind of thinking about partnerships as being this having someone else who's got your back and who can fill things in for you when you're not I, what was Kari's word the things that we are we ourselves are less than fantastic at yeah someone else 
might be fantastic at that. And that's a great thing. Well, and I think what we lose with complementarianism is we lose the idea mm-hmm. of same-sex relationships. So you've yes. got, you know, if you've got two women, I think yeah. the ultimate feminism there would be that they're still coming together as two wholly, mm-hmm. fully female, and they still have an absolutely solid relationship as two females. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they still complement each and other. And they still complement each gender. other, and that they still, even if they've got the same gender, it detracts from two men to say that you absolutely have to have a female in there somewhere. You don't. If these two come together to become one, then that means mm-hmm. that they are together to become one. You come together with your whole self, mm-hmm. and that, yeah. I, I, going back to what Julie was, that takes decades. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. that takes such a that takes such a long time to finally and truly be yourself, that takes years because you're still trying yeah. to figure yourself out. The 20s are all about that. I, for me, they were anyway, of trying to figure out who I am and what I am as a, a, a woman. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to come together in a relationship and understand yourself in that relationship as a fully, fully formed human without mm-hmm. having certain experience and maturity along with it. If yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah. Our next listener is Marilyn. And she's got something to say about folktale, myth, fairy tale, novel and film as a progression. Our conversation mm-hmm. that we had with Amy, which was yeah. just wonderful. Marilyn's also a scholar around kind of fairy tales and text too. So she's coming at this certainly from a, um, you know, having spent time studying it. Um, and she's talking about, remember we talked about the the, a, the ATU index of kind of all the different yeah. stories or, or different types of fairy tales. Yep. And she argues that, that most of those are European in context, but that they do include examples from other parts of the world. But the, the interesting thing I think she was talking about, and, and this might be worth talking about a bit more, is so from the kernel of tale type, we get a folk tale. So it's very tied to a particular region and even a specific place. And then that folktale then can become a myth where there's kind of this religious or spiritual fleshing out of the tale. So making meaning of that folktale. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a fairy tale, which then becomes a highly specific sort of genre where we know maybe authors' names or it's a particular type of literary version that she'll talk about um, or she mentions in a minute. Uh, but it's the it's a different, it's the folktale, but fleshed out in a different way. That's uh-huh. basically what she's saying. Okay. And then we get the novel, which is a long longer longer version of that and then you know film and tv could also be a part of that too yeah what she says is that the beauty and the beast is a beast husband tale type like like amy um talked about in this in the uh, episodes but that the folktale versions of this story include east of the sun uh, with its references to trolls and polar bears and plucky lasses putting it firmly in that genre but then the myth version would be like cupid and psyche mm-hmm. first recorded in metamorphosis which, you know, might be a novel yeah. or might be something else, but then also counts as myth because of the presence of deities. So there's a there's a god-type figure or god-like figures in the telling of mm-hmm. it. And then she says that the fairy tale version traces back to, to France and to the salons that 
were quite revolutionary in their intention. So the intention was that these salon ladies were to be offered advice or offering advice to young women on how to choose a marriage partner. Mm-hmm. And so the drama consisted in this story of Beauty and the Beast, not about the, the beast so much, but how beauty would recognize the value of kindness over riches or wit or good looks or, you know, like these different values or virtues right. to, upon which to choose a partner. Mm-hmm. And so she was saying that the subsequent retellings of the story, especially the film versions, make it then all about the beast of whether or not he will or won't become human again, as opposed to the the salon ladies being told this is how you well, how you pick a partner. Yeah, so the salon ladies control that story, but if you put it in novel yes. or get it published or put it on film, who controls that story? The person yeah, who identifies yeah. with the beast, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and and looking what, at what she's saying, you know, so I, I'm thinking, I'm wondering, let's let's just put it this way. Mm. I'm wondering mm. if we get that very specific folktale that's tied to the region mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. kind of what Levi Strauss is saying is that those things spread into other regions mm-hmm. and then they put their spin on it. Yeah, because people travel but people and people travel, tell stories wherever they go. Yep, and, yep. and they take that, that back and they put their own spin on it so that they can sit around the fire mm-hmm. and tell the story. And they remember it in different ways, but it does have kind of a, a basis and it becomes a little more universal. And, and then when you universalize it by saying that there is a God in here, that there's a Cupid and Psyche and the rest of the, you know, there's a, the gods are involved. That means that this story now is universal, that this is the way the world works and that it works this way because God has ordained it to work this way. Or God um, is in control of it working this way. This is part of the design. What I find yeah. interesting yeah. is that it comes from that and becomes a little bit more specific. Yeah. I find that yeah. really interesting is that they mm-hmm. take a piece of what becomes universal and says, this is how you can apply it to your life. And here's the story. Mm-hmm. The story is, mm-hmm. you know, men can be beasts. But here, let me show you. Let, let me give you an example. And then mm-hmm. they start telling the story in the salons that are almost morality stories, almost, yeah, yeah almost, you know, yeah. Aesop's Tales type of thing with the moral. I was yeah. just thinking about that. Aesop's Fables yeah. as being a, a yeah, an example. Yeah, so almost yeah. kind of a, a here's a take on what we universally understand. Let me put mm-hmm. this into your language and how you can use mm-hmm. this is, you know, love kindness over money, love this over that. And you see that in actually yeah. a lot of Grimm's, Grimm's tales, too. I mean, I, I can remember mm-hmm. reading stories of, you know, the, the woman who, you know, the, the witch who poses as the rich woman. And, and she, she comes to two different people and she asks help. She poses mm-hmm. as an old lady and she comes and asks help. And the good girl offers her help. And so she gives her blessings mm-hmm. and riches and the bad girl mm-hmm. doesn't. And so she gives her curses and it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing is you never know who's going to be coming to see you. You never know. You might be running into angels unaware. Yeah. I, I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, that's a good Samaritan story. Yes. And I've never thought about the sure good Samaritan. Is. Well, it's a parable. Duh. Of course. Yeah. Um, but just, Yeah. As an archetype yeah. story that Jesus is telling. So Jesus plucks this thing that we universally know from the air, yeah. and he creates the Good mm. Samaritan story hmm. for a something very specific. 
for something so very specific. Cool. Yes, right? <laughs> oh, I love what we do. That's so much Yeah, fun. but the paradox is he he mm. changes it a bit. It's not mm. it's not just that it's mm. an old woman. It's your enemy that has done the right thing. The person lying in the yeah. road is nobody's enemy except the person yeah. who helped him. Yeah. And so he he does yeah. change it up a bit. He 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 changes mm-hmm. it specifically for the people who are listening to him. He says that the priest and the Pharisee don't do the right thing. They follow the yeah. law. But they don't do the right thing. Mm-hmm. So it's I mean it, mm-hmm. he 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 changes one small bit of it and it becomes parable so that we understand yeah. it in a different light. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but but that practice isn't unique. No. I mean, that, no. so what the what the ladies of the salon are doing to the story is going to also be in the same way in changing the story a bit from what it was before or adding a different spin on it or helping us to see it in, in that particular context, in that particular right. way as being applicable to our lives in a, to help you live a better life. So, yeah. Wow. That's really cool. So Marilyn also says that in pondering all this, it has occurred to her, the question is, are all romance stories in essence retelling of the Beauty and the Beast story? She says, not the folktale version, not the myth, but the fairy tale in in which it's about how to choose a partner. So she's thinking, or just saying, that um, she couldn't think of a romance story that didn't fit that bill. And so she gives a list of, you know, Jane Austen, Pamela, Outlander, but that she wanted to kind of hear our thoughts about that. I don't don't know. I I don't know that that's true. mm. I, first of all, I, I a, don't like to, to say all things are this. So I, there's always an exception. Yeah, yeah. There's a strong subgenre, well, not subgenre, a piece of the genre of romance that has to do with same-sex relationships. And I've not read mm-hmm. a lot of that genre. And so I, I can't say, I can't speak with any authority there on same-sex mm-hmm. romance novels, whether or not they follow mm-hmm our uh, Beauty and the Beast uh, motif. If somebody mm-hmm. out there is listening to this and has read mm-hmm. a lot of that, if they could let us know, that mm-hmm. would be great. I can say if, if... I would think there would be kind of a general... I, I'm not... Again, I'm, I'm, I think there must be... There has to be exceptions. There are. And, I, I and mean, I'm thinking of Emma. Yeah, and see, I'm thinking of Persuasion. Yeah. So even from Jane Austen, I, Pride and Prejudice, yes, I think I could certainly see that as Beauty and the Beast, but I don't think Persuasion or Emma are Beauty and the Beast stories. And Pride and Prejudice it seems to be her most popular novel. It's the one that's just mm. been recreated so many times. And mm. while I'm, I'm thinking, it, but Emma is the boy next door. Yeah. Uh, Emma is, yeah. this is the man I grew up with, and so of course I'm going to miss him because she's too you know, self-involved to be able to see what's right in front of her. He's the boy next door. Yeah. And so he's not really Little women would probably be that too, to some extent. I mean, even though little women, even though she does end up going, going with someone else, there's still that, that tension. And he, there's no beast in the. No, the professor's not a beast at all. He's Mm -hmm. actually quite a lovely man who. You know, she mm-hmm. she falls for. And it's a beautiful romance there. And the mm-hmm. romance between mm-hmm. Lori and Amy is mm-hmm. is sweet. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it's a, mm-hmm. there's a sweetness there. I mean, I guess you could argue that Little Women isn't necessarily a romance. 
Mm-hmm. But you can't argue that about Emma. No. And you can't argue that about Persuasion mm-hmm. or even about mm-hmm. Northanger Abbey. Yeah. He's not a beast. Yeah. Um, he's a, he's a yeah. minister. <laughs> she yeah. falls for him from the beginning. I mean, Jane Eyre, I think, could be a Beauty and the Beast story. It is, yeah. With the whole specter of, of his wife yep, up in the tower, absolutely. too. So, okay. So then maybe break down the question of all romance stories are perhaps stories are about about how to choose a partner, but not a Beauty and the Beast story is not the only way to tell that or how to illustrate that question. Yeah, I think does that I, make sense? I think that does make sense. And I don't know if it's Yeah, I, I think there's an element of how this is how to choose a partner. But it also mm-hmm. might be an element of this is how to recognize your feelings. Yes. And what to do with them. Yes. Because you might be having like an Emma, you might be having feelings against the evil <laughs> the, the one that's mm-hmm. but you have to be wary of your feelings necessarily mm-hmm. here. This is this is kind of the story mm-hmm. of Wuthering Heights, right? You, yeah. you, you you've got the beauty and the beast, obviously. But they have to be mm-hmm. wary of their feelings because when it was written, feelings mm-hmm. and emotions are not really to be trusted. That when yeah. they come together, they are they are ice and fire and they are like blowing things up. Mm-hmm. But it, it it's not a completion when they're together, honestly. They're much happy. She's much happier if they're not together. I would never say that Heathcliff is a happy character. He's never a happy character. But um, but Kathy is much better off and much calmer and much more peaceful when she's not with Heathcliff. And, you know, once they're back together, she she doesn't last long. Which then that kind of brings into so what we talked about when we were talking about Outlander's romance of kind of the the markers of the genre is that they live happily ever after. So in that case, Wuthering Heights wouldn't be a romance. No, but but it is right. But it is right. And then there's also the kind of romance usually takes you up to the to the marriage, and then again it's happily ever after, right. and you don't really spend any time after that. And so Marilyn talks about. Also, she said, I read somewhere once that Western culture fairy tales are all stuck in adolescence, that they only go up into the marriage and then never go beyond into maturity in a way that other cultures do. And she was thinking that there are Persian examples that do this, for instance. And and our argument has been that Outlander has done that too. Yep. That it is still romance, yep. even though we are going beyond the wedding. Yep. Yes, it might be happily ever after, but we get to see the ever after. We are spending time with what happens after and would still very much argue despite diana's thoughts yeah. that this is a romance you know i wonder so she wrote this first book as a lark right yeah and mm-hmm. it ends with claire being pregnant which is yeah. kind of the the product of their consummation the mm-hmm. product of because you know the romance isn't just or a romance novel isn't always ending in marriage sometimes it just ends in a consummation no. of some sort and of course yeah. their consummation happen around happens around mid book but mm-hmm. the the product of the consummation the the re um, entering the relationship after his rape and torture the idea that they they have now this product this proof that they are now forever together it ends on that note. And she had not been able to get pregnant right, previously. Right, So Frank. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if Diana had thought through the other books before this became sensational. 
Yeah. So Diana, can you tell us? (laughs) I know you're listening. Can you tell us if you had all of these books in the back of your head that this was how it was going to be and end? Or or did suddenly your you know best selling novel becoming best selling led you yeah. to consider what happens to Jamie and Claire later, and that's when you came up with a a means by which to tell a longer story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. All right, and we need to talk about this one last person who wrote this very 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 long. Mm-hmm bits but she's just got a really great critique of what we said yeah so can yeah and it's totally fair totally fair so jen came to us after the beauty and the beast fairy tale discussion too to uh, call us out rightly so on how we dealt with leary yeah so <laughs> she started out, bless her. She's like, you're rocking this season. I love, love, love this episode about Outlander is fairy tale. I did think y'all were a wee bit hard on Leary, though. <laughs> <laughs> and then proceeds to tell us how, and she's totally right. So she says, yeah. I think she is a much more sympathetic character if you analyze the story from a feminist perspective. Ouch! Yeah. <laughs> We were the we were the woman haters here. Oh my god, and it hurts we to realize that. So Jen, you were absolutely right. Oh my god, yeah. How did we not do that? Yep. So she goes. First off, it was stated that we don't. We stated. We said Terry and I. It was stated that we don't know why Leary did not enjoy or did not want sex with Jamie. I mean, who wouldn't? Right. At least yeah, the way we read course, him. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. She says, though, that we do know. Um, She says that she tells Claire that she could feel Claire's hand on Jamie and he'd cry out for her, meaning Claire, in his sleep. And she quotes from Dragonfly and Amber, uh, chapter 34. She says, I could feel her hand on him, she whispered, in our bed, lying there between us with her hand on him. So he would stiffen and cry out to her in his sleep. She was a witch. I always knew. And so Leary's explaining exactly why sex with Jamie was so distasteful. And she, Jen is arguing it didn't have anything to do with prior abuse or fear of pregnancy or any other reason that Jamie has speculated about. So our speculations then become our Jamie's speculations, not what Leary actually says, which is interesting. And so when the two women run, run into each other in Voyager, Leary tells Claire to get back to the hell from which you came. So Leary is still thinking that Claire is some sort of witch and using some kind of power of darkness over Jamie, that Jamie has been bewitched or, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. At, at 16 years old, her actually setting up mm. the process to rid themselves of the witch would actually be mm-hmm. helping Jamie as well as herself. So if she actually yeah. believes this, having yeah. been raised in, uh, you know, Highlander Scotland in the 18th in the 18th mm-hmm. century, she would probably mm-hmm. believe this. It says if she were just scheming and trying to get rid of Claire so that she could get her hooks into Jamie, why would she take a risk like she did? She was the yeah. 16-year-old servant of the Laird taking it upon herself to get rid of a married woman of a higher status who has obvious value to the clan as a healer was a huge leap. And if she had been caught, she certainly would have been beaten, if not banished, for going against the male authority at Leoc. If she successfully mm-hmm. eliminated Claire by engineering her, in, her execution, why would a grief-stricken widower turn to her? Yeah. 
So she didn't have, she did not believe, truly believe that Jamie was in love with Claire. She no. thought he was bewitched. I mean, Claire makes the the love potions. Claire makes these things. Mm. So she probably mm. did it for herself to get ahead in the clan. And, yeah. Yeah. So Jen, yeah, she's saying modern readers aren't willing to attribute sincerity to the mo- of motive to Leary, but I think when we do that, her actions make a lot more sense. Yeah. Which I think is probably true. She says that for her actions to make sense, you have to accept that in no way does she believe that Jamie is genuinely besotted with his new wife. From Leary's perspective, he was all over her one day, and then the next day, time she comes to see him, he's in a forced marriage to someone outside the community. So. Here's Larry, a Mackenzie, and in her role as servant to Column, is certainly aware that Dougal's motives for engineering this marriage are about power for Dougal and Column, and that Jamie has just become a pawn in their scheme. So she's uneducated, and we know that she's religious, and so it only makes sense if Jamie was enchanted, and by doing away with Claire, the enchantment then would be broken. Yeah. And so, and the textual evidence to support this view, but we don't really get it until book seven, when Jamie goes back to Scotland and is curious about who Leary is shacked up with. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting and and a really great perspective. And I have not considered that before. Neither had Mm. I. And I, I mean, she's Mm -hmm. right. It's all there. I do remember Leary complaining in Echo in the Bone that Jamie never needed her. It was mm-hmm. great to hear that in Leary's voice. And I remember that. Mm. And why mm. she chose the the young man that she's with, Joey, mm-hmm. who is challenged in many ways, but that Joey needs mm-hmm. her. My assumption in reading that, though, wasn't to really listen to her voice. And that's just so wrong of me. It was yeah. it was really to go, oh, God, you're so needy, <laughs> Leary. <laughs> I did too. Oh, God. I was just like, Jesus, so... woman. Now you still can't, you know, like, you're just now noticing this. <laughs> yeah. So, Jen, but of you course, totally just put your finger on something that we did not see. We were putting a lot of emphasis on Leary's trauma and, like you mm-hmm. said, and her past experience of abuse and that. And it may have happened, but it also might not have been the reason. You know, it could be yeah. more, much more complicated than this. And that yeah. Leary did have a reason for doing what she did. And it wasn't yeah. just so that she could be with Jamie. She might have been doing this yeah. to free her entire clan from the clutches of somebody yeah. that she thought was trying to take over, particularly Assassinuk, particularly the fact yeah. that, you know, these are people now depending on an English woman. There's a big yeah. issue. So... Jen points out, she says that all major characters all admit at various times in the text that they don't really believe in witches. But Leary is not educated, she's not sophisticated, and she's religious, and she absolutely believes in them. And so Jen points out that Diana can be really sly with her reversals yes. of fairy tale and romance yes. tropes, yeah. which we've talked about a bit. But yeah, this is exactly that. And that Leary in this story is Leary as rescuer and Jamie as helpless maiden is one way to kind of read this plot that Leary is like I need to save the day and and the only way to do this is to rid rid of Claire yeah and so then we get a double twist when Jamie literally rides up on a horse and scoops up Claire taking her away from Cranesmuir leaving Leary to just kind of go well, what the fuck what just happened? <laughs> um, 
Not, so yeah, yeah, I, that is a much more subversive reading that I think is probably much truer. Yeah, actually. Well, and I, I, I think it gives credit to to Diana and I'll, also to Jen yeah. for recognizing it of truly yeah. fleshing out Leary as a character. Yeah, truly well. fleshing yeah. out Leary in um, three dimensions where we were just giving her two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 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 I love that quote from Leary of, you know, why, you know, Jamie asks asks her uh, asks her why Joey and and you know, he's like him? What, you know, why him kind of thing. And Jamie, you know, thinking why would anybody want somebody like him? And she's like, yeah, because he needs me and you you bastard never did. It's the <laughs> you you bastard. Oh, that at the point really respected Leary. Yep. That was that's like my favorite thing from her is <laughs> calling Jamie a bastard. Okay. Um she also makes some comments about the beauty and the beast parallel about Yeah, she does. about Jamie coming to a woman's bed as a brute mm. out of need in and satisfaction. In Voyager, yeah. he he makes this comment after he and Claire have been together for a while that he mm-hmm. hadn't laughed in a woman's bed in a long time. Well, I, actually, I think he makes that earlier on. I, yeah, I think it's fairly, fairly early after Claire returns. Yeah, that that he hadn't laughed in a woman's bed in a long time, and that he'd yeah. only really come to a woman's bed after Claire left out of brute, out of need, brute need and for his own yeah. gratification. So he, that he used Leary and the marriage for his own yeah. gratification, and and we know this yeah. because which he, we talked about. Yeah. We've said, you know, like. Mm-mm. If he was using her out of brute need, then maybe then she's right to not want to sleep with him. So, right, yeah. because Claire yeah. experiences this when he does this in his sleep, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. she doesn't know who he's trying to be with. He, it, it, for yeah. those who may not she's have like, read who do you, who it, yeah, the fuck do for you those think who, I am, I think is what yeah, she asks him. Yeah, mm-hmm. she she is she's laying next to him. He rolls over, tries to separate her legs, and she's like, "Uh, uh-uh. uh," and he then forces her to separate her legs. This is Claire, mm-hmm. but he's still asleep. Mm-hmm. She wakes him up mm-hmm. and says, "Who the hell do you think I am?" Yeah. And it gives her some insight into the marriage between he and Leary, and and it gives us some insight between the marriage of he and Leary, but also, yeah. you know, what happens with he and Geneva. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, they don't just have the sex that once that night. Mm-hmm. They have it more than once that evening. And he does he does force Geneva at one point. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, yeah, he's admitting to Claire that he's a beast that can only be tamed by Claire. Hmm. That she's the only one that can sort of bring joy into the situation. Otherwise, he's just a brute about it. Which, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not cool. But she. That, really? No. <laughs> And, 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 and we've said this. We're not cool with that. We're not cool with what happened mm. between he and Leary. We're not cool mm. with we're not cool with one woman being the only key to a, to unleash a man's kindness. Yeah. And gentleness. Yeah. I'm not yeah. cool with that at all. I, I think that we're responsible for our actions. And so mm-hmm. just by saying I'm a male and I'm a brute is, yeah. is not an excuse. Doesn't absolve you of any of responsibility. No, no. Jen, one of the quote, one of the things she says is, "He's a violent, talking about Jamie, a violent, somewhat antisocial alpha male who can only be redeemed by the love of a good woman, (laughs) (laughs) and that he is not the king of men." She says this. No. And and we've we've made this comment before. Is he really Mm -hmm. the king of men? 
mm-hmm. you know, particularly. It, it, she says that it was intended ironically or facetiously by the TV show writer's room, but was taken literally by the fan base, yeah. which, yeah, we see that. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Isn't that funny? It's funny. How sarcasm and irony do not translate all the time. <laughs> well, and so, no, no, the sarcasm didn't because they had to make changes, mm-hmm. right, for the television show. Yeah. They had to make yep. changes to make him the hero always mm-hmm. and not add these mm-hmm. complications of his inability to control himself or his choices and actions that were not yep. great. So, I mean, they took away this issue with Leary. We don't get to see mm-hmm. that in their relationship. No. They took away this mm-hmm. issue with Geneva. They've not added the complications because you can't in an hour and get away with it. Yeah. Well, okay, so we probably should finish there for this episode. We've got um, more feedback for the next episode from Kim around the issue of sexual violence, which, you know, we've kind of started here, but we'll pick back up. And then from Catherine and Marilyn and Elizabeth around forgiveness, mercy, justice, vengeance conversation that we had before. And then a few ideas that we'll kind of pick through that some of the listeners have given us as far as upcoming episodes. So we'll talk a little bit about those. This has been great, guys. Thank you so much for your back for great. your um, it's feedback. So much fun. This has been so yep. great, and I just mm-hmm. this this is why we do this. So thank you. Yeah. So thanks very much, and we will see you next time. Yep. Bye. That's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. If you love what we do, a review, especially on iTunes, but wherever you get your podcasts would be really appreciated because it helps people to find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us financially. Just click the support us button at our website on outlandersoul.com. There's lots of ways to donate either via Patreon or PayPal and every little bit helps. Also, we love hearing your comments, questions, and ideas for the show. So we'd like for you to join in the conversation. So you can reach us through our website, through email, voice memos, or social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. You can also contact us straight by email, outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com. All lowercase, all one word. Or you can visit our website at outlandersoul.com and fill in the contact form. Thanks again, everyone. Bye.